right, so I got a cup of water here and a pocket full of cough drops. <clears throat> My kid's not missing an opportunity to poke fun at their father. Also, we're as relieved that after 40 plus years, I finally went through puberty and my voice changed. And so, <clears throat> um, it will probably crack a couple times as well, um, but we'll get through it. Um, so we're in uh, Galatians chapter four. <clears throat> we're gonna be in verse uh, 21 through 31. I'll give you a moment to get there. So this is a pretty pivotal um, section of scripture that um, Paul gets to, and he's going to draw on um, you know st- story of in Genesis um, to make his point um, to the people um, and to the church and to help them uh, teach them to to disciple them to mentor them and, and bring them along so that they would understand the gospel better so they'd understand what it means to follow Christ and submit to Him and the implications of that on their life. Um, So let me read the passage for us. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, speak to us tonight. Meet us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So that made perfect sense to everyone, right? That was just clear as mud. Um, you know, yeah, I get exactly what Paul's saying. Um, so we're going to dive into that, walk through it, um, scratch the surface of it a bit um, as, we, as we look. And so one of the major themes uh, that runs through the entire book of Galatians uh, is that we're in slavery. Or we're being kept, we're being limited by something. Uh, and what Paul says over and over is that it is impossible to think that we can somehow save ourselves. Right? That we have to do something to, to gain the favor and the acceptance of God. And the reason that he's writing this is that some folks have come into the church uh, of Galatia. Right? They're Jewish Christians. And they said, yes, you need to believe in Jesus. But you also have to be circumcised. Right? You have to keep some of the elements of, of the purity laws of the Old Testament. Right? Basically, you have to believe and you have to, have, you have to work. 
You have to do something. And Paul is saying uh, blatantly, as loud as he can, and, and writes this letter, no, that's not the case. In fact, that will destroy the gospel. So he's basically making one main point in our passage. So I give away it in the beginning. Right? We look to Christ alone for our acceptance with God, not to any of our efforts uh, and means to um, self-justify ourselves, you know, to make ourselves right by our own work, by our own efforts, by our own ability, whatever that might look like. Because Paul said up to this point uh, that the law can't save you. Right? It can only enslave you. And that's what he begins to continue to, to weave through um, in, in this chapter and, and in the chapter to come. And so there are some religious people today that, that base their, their spiritual identity on their morality, uh, on their ethics, um, on their high standards, uh, for keeping the rules. Right? They... They base their relationship of, with God on that. Right? And these, these folks tend to be, you know, a little, a little bit haughty. Uh, you know, an air of uh, superiority often. But deep down, there is this really deep insecurity. Because they know that it's impossible to keep all the rules. So they wear this, this facade, right? This, it's a facade because it's not real. It's an attempt, uh, you know, at a mirage of sorts to convince themselves and to convince others. Then there are also some people who will uh, go to the point of being irreligious. Right? I, don't, I don't have any need for God. I'm going to set my own standards for morality. Right? What works for me works for me. Right? It's a relative morality. But in that, the ironic thing is there's also an air of superiority in that. Right? Because obviously my system of morality is better than your system of morality because I'm doing it. If yours was better, then we would do yours if that was what was right. Right? And so there's also this deep sense of discomfort because even in that way of thinking, there is this kind of universal right and wrong. Right? My system is, is the system that should be followed because I'm following it. I'm doing it, whatever that system is. And yet they are still unable to keep the rules the rules that they've set for themselves, the rules that they have put out for themselves. Right? So you have the religious and, and the irreligious, and both of them, to some level, are doing something in order to be right with God or right with the world or right with fill in the blank with what it is. And when Paul comes on the scene and says, there's another way. There's another way of freedom that we can have. He says that you can obey the law. You can. But you could do it without deriving your self-worth from it. 
You can do it without deriving your righteousness from it. And on top of that, there's even a, a joy in it. Right? A joy in resting in your acceptance with God by grace through faith in Jesus. And in that rest, and out of that rest, to seek to be obedient. Not to earn grace, but because you have grace. He says there's, there is a way to navigate and to experience that joy of knowing that you're not rejected because you're bad. You're not accepted because you're good. You're loved because you're a child. His child. So let's look at what he says in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Right, Paul's basically saying, are you not aware of what the law says? Which is ironic because that's the very thing that they're putting out. That they're, is the cornerstone of what their, their message. Right, there's a sense of being unwilling or unable to believe some, you know, something in his voice even. And then he goes on to build this really brilliant argument. And he uses this really well-known story. Uh, to show the false teachers that their position is really, it's self-defeating. They're going to be defeated by the thing that they're espousing. He's telling them that the law that you say you follow actually contradicts what you're saying. And that's, I think, part of why this is so confusing in some regards. Especially for people that maybe don't hold to that reality. Right? He's, he's He's contextualizing his, his letter, his argument, to the people of the day using the very story that they use to hold up what they're distorting in the gospel. So the Judaizers are, are these false teachers. So Paul goes, we're going to go, we're going to go to Genesis 12. We're going to walk through this passage, and I'm going to show you why you're in error. Excuse me. So let's look at verse 22 and 23. Let me read it again for us. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of this free woman was born through promise. He said that these two ways, right, to become a child of Abraham, by the flesh or by the promise. And he goes on, you, you get down to verse 28. He says that the, you know, the moment that you believe in Christ, you become a child of the promise. So you can't be both. Right? You can't be a child of the flesh and a child of the promise. So let's jump into to Genesis 12. Refresh ourselves on that a little. I know it's probably a story that many of us are familiar with. But I think it's always good to walk through those things again. Right, so we're told Abraham receives a promise from God. Right, God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to make you the father of a great nation. He's going to be so numerous that you're not going to be, count, be able to count the stars in the sky. And Abraham's response to him is, I'm old. Right, he's almost 100 at this point. And my wife is no longer young. We can't have kids. We have not had kids. 
God tells them it's a promise. So Abraham and Sarah, they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait a little more. The years go by. So finally, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, I have an idea. And since God seems to, like, you know, maybe has fallen asleep a bit, I'm going to give you my servant, Hagar, and you can have a child with her. And then we'll be able to continue the lineage. God can use that lineage to number the stars in the sky. That's how God's going to do it. And he's going to, you know, bless us through this. And, you know, we're just going to kind of get it, get it going. So Hagar gets pregnant and not surprisingly, it creates conflict in their home. Surprise. They're at each other's throat. There's division. And finally, Hagar gets sent away. <clears throat> so Abraham's efforts don't work. Right? It, it just creates division. It, it creates disruption and disintegration in their household. Fast forward a little. Sarah, who's upwards of 100 years now, miraculously gets pregnant and she gives birth to Isaac. Right, and Paul says in verse 23 here that Ishmael was born you know, in the regular old way, but Isaac was born of the promise of God. Isaac was born out of the supernatural intervention in human history of God. You see, Abraham had decided not to wait on the intervention of God. I mean, he waited some. Right? Clearly, God was not going to follow through on his promise. And so he acted on his own. Now, here's the point. Abraham relied on his own capability. Right? He was, he was acting in faith, though. What was his faith in? Himself. Their plan. Their idea of what it meant to uh, fulfill the promise of God. And it resulted in disaster. Right? His efforts of, of self-salvation or self-preservation, of, of even say seeking to honor and, and uh, fulfill God's uh, promise failed. Right? When we rely on our own efforts of salvation, they fail. When we set our standards uh, of how we are going to be right and whole, they fail and they result in disintegration spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Because what we do is we say that this is what I must do. Yeah, God, you're, you're going to love me. You're going to provide for me. But he's, he's just doesn't seem to be working out. Right? In essence, we're going to say, I need to make up the slack of God's shortcomings, right? of our perceived, my perceived shortcomings of God, because he should have done it this way, or, I mean, I, I prayed and I asked this, and why hasn't he given me this child of promise? Like, I mean, why are the years going by and nothing's happened? And, and fill in the blank for what that is. And it becomes easy for us to convince ourselves, I think very much, for Sarah and Abraham. Well, this must be what it was. This is why it's taken so long. Like, we're, we're, the problem was with us. We should have done this years ago. 
It's so easy for us to put ourselves into the seat of God. And a lot of times we don't even realize we've done it because it's, it's just been, you know, it's like moving the piano an inch. It takes a year for you to realize, like, why is the piano in the middle of the sanctuary? How did that happen? You know, because our, we just, that slow move, inch by inch, and we realize, I'm not relying on God anymore in anything. We've just slowly allowed that creep and that shift to take place in our heart, in our families, in our lives. Because when we rely on our own efforts of salvation, they fail. When we set our own standards for how we are going to do it, they don't work out. So we try, we often try, though, to be moral, right? We, we try to be uh, ethical. And what you and I know, though, is that that often fails. And the problem is when, we, when we've set that around, when our entire self-worth is wrapped up into that reality, and when our acceptance is wrapped up into that, it, and that falls apart, it creates a spiritual ripping that takes place in our life, right? It creates the fear and insecurity of, of well, what do I do now? Like when, we've, when we've created this facade of the Christian life and it starts to crumble, there's nothing underneath that, seemingly. Fear and insecurity begin to, to move in. Right? You're left without hope, and our lives begin to disintegrate. Right? We often become bitter. We become defensive. We begin to distance ourselves from people because we're afraid that they're really going to see who we are. They're going to see us. We don't want people to see the brokenness. Right? It all results in disintegration, just like Abraham's actions with the slave woman. Right? Our determination to be our own savior through our own efforts only results in more slavery. It's part of what Paul is, is communicating here. Right? We end up building for ourselves our own prison that we're trapped in. Sometimes the most religious people are the farthest from God. Right? Jesus walks through parables about that. I wish we had time to walk through. And that's where the gospel comes in. That's what's there to, to, uh, to catch, to embrace. When, the, when, the, um, when that disintegration starts happening, when the cracks in the facade start to be exposed and begin to crumble, that's when the gospel comes in. Paul uses Hagar and Sarah as a metaphor for the gospel. It's figurative of how uh, following the flesh is the same as being in slavery. I'm going to read for us again 24 through 28 in light of everything that I've just said. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. <clears throat> she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So what that means is that in Paul's argument here, Hagar's son represents um, salvation by works. You see that Abraham tried to fulfill the covenant, right, the promise of God, through Hagar. Right? It's, an, it's an effort of works. It resulted in Ishmael. And it's slavery. Because now you're in bondage to what you can do. To what you can fulfill. Because if you can earn the promise of God, guess what else you can do? You can lose the promise of God as well. And he says Sarah's pregnancy is the result of promise. Her pregnancy is a result of supernatural intervention that births Isaac. And this is grace. This is relying on the promises of God and these covenants of grace. See, that's why in, in verse 31, it says, we through Jesus, right, we, we are the children of the free woman. We are the children of grace. Right, we receive the promise of God through this intervention of God in our lives, through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Right, that's the gospel. So as Abraham needed to switch his faith, if you will, from from Hagar to Sarah, from his own self-efforts to the supernatural work of God, he says also, you Galatians, you need to look to the work of Jesus and not to your own efforts, like circumcision for your justification, right? For your standing before God. And that call is the same for us as we read this text this morning, this evening. We cannot look to our own efforts for our justification or for our sanctification for that matter. For our our growth in in the Christian life. Because the way we start the Christian life is the way we live it each day. The way we continue it until he calls us home. It's by faith in Jesus Christ his life, his death, and the resurrection. It's by grace that we are saved. God had said to Abraham, I'm not going, I'm going to make you a great nation, but you're helpless to do this on your own. It It will not happen if you try to make it happen, but I will accomplish it through a barren woman I will use your powerlessness to show my power. You see, empty religion says that salvation is only only for those that are good. It's what I call empty religion. Right? Only for those who can keep keep the rules, can keep the facade, can look kind of this way and project this reality. It eventually, ultimately, though, keeps everybody out. Right? When we bring that view of God into faith, it rots away your heart. It destroys you from the inside out. 
See, Christianity says that anyone can come to God through faith, no matter their record. Young and old, anyone and everyone will remain with God in spite of their ongoing failures. That's how grace works. Right? We, we, obviously, we don't sin so grace may abound. Paul takes it up here in a little while. But it's about the object of our faith, right? Not our effort. Not even the the faith in and of itself. It's what we're putting that faith in, in that mustard seed of faith. Eternity. Christians, we're a bunch of barren Sarahs. We are unable to do it on our own. Right? We need the intervention of God in our lives. I know Paul thought he did. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.30. I'll read it for us. If I must boast, I will boast in things that show my weakness. Not that it will show my power, not that it will show my abilities or my best efforts. And I'll say, well, God, at least I tried. Why would he boast in that? Because it shows the power of God at work in him. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight, delight, I delight in weakness. Just let that sink in for a little while. The things that we delight in, or that we would say, I delight in, I love, I desire after. I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't think we live that way. I don't, I don't live that way. We feel we must, we got, I got, we got to put it on. I got to show off my power. I got to show off my ability, my, my rightness. And I, we, need, we wear it like a badge often. Paul says of God, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. A few questions to ponder as, as we think about this passage, as you begin your, your week uh, coming up here, as we uh, you know, shift back to um, parenting kids running through the house and, and managing employees and dealing with uh, bosses and you know, fill in the blank of all the things that are going to creep in as we leave here and start thinking about Monday morning. How can you delight in your weaknesses instead of hiding them? How can you delight in your weaknesses instead of hiding them? Where in your life are you being enslaved by the law? Where are you building a prison for yourself? 
Do you feel the need to perform or pretty up aspects of your life? Why? I encourage you to think about these, journal about them, I don't, you blog about it. I, I, whatever your thing is that you do, draw pictures about them. Reflect on those as you think about this passage as we continue to move through Galatians uh, in the evening services. Let's trust our Father afresh this evening and find our rest in him right, as a baby finds its rest in its parents' arms. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our friend, our Savior, God, we come to you saying thank you, saying that all we have is, is from you. God, our entire standing comes out of your promises and your grace. I pray that you would not allow us to treat, to just treat that, this like some sort of roadside grace, but rather that th this is a calling for us to follow, God, to, be, uh, to be faithful, to be pure, to be holy, and, and yet to know that it doesn't get us any closer to your embrace. But Father, we seek to do that out of a posture of gratitude and thankfulness. And so we say, we're thankful. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for your mercies. Pour it out afresh on us. Father, and for those this evening who have never known the grace of you, would you whisper to them, I want you. Stop striving and come and find rest. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.